seated. I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 8 this morning in your copy of God's Word, whether that be digital or hard copy. I want to invite you to Genesis chapter number 8. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Thomas Chisholm. Thomas was born in a Kentucky log cabin in 1866. And like most people in 1866, certainly in his part of Kentucky, he didn't have a formal education, and yet he was so well studied and and so hungry to learn that he was smart enough to begin teaching at the local schoolhouse when he was 16 years old. He developed a love and a passion for writing, and so uh, just a few years later, he moved on from teaching at the school to become an associate editor for his local hometown newspaper where he really began to develop a love and a passion for writing. And everything was going uh, just as you could imagine a young man trying to build a career until Thomas Chisholm's life entirely changed when he accepted Jesus Christ as his savior at age 27. He loved using his mind and his pen to serve academia or to serve the media, but now he wanted to use the gifts God had given him to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he enlisted to be a minister in the Methodist church, and he eventually was ordained and pastored a congregation of his own in Scottsville, Kentucky. Even better than that, as if life couldn't get any sweeter for this new Christian, he married his wife Catherine in 1903, and they started a family of their own. And everything was going exactly how Thomas dreamed. Until about a year after becoming a pastor, his life took a dramatic course change when he began to have some serious health problems, so bad that he could no longer serve as the pastor of his church. He had to resign from being a pastor because of his poor health, and he had to sell life insurance. He instead of having financial stability, was having increasing hospital bills to keep up with his disease. But this man who loved Jesus, the same Jesus who saved him, was not shaken in his faith. Despite his struggles, Thomas always tried to see God's faithfulness at work in his life. He really wished he could be writing sermons to deliver to a congregation, but instead he chose to use those talents still for the Lord by beginning to write poems and songs. It's about 20 years after his diagnosis that Thomas Chisholm penned, I think, one of the greatest hymns ever written, one that we sang this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness as he tries to point people's minds back to the never-changing kindness of God that is present not just in good times, but would you agree, seasoned Christians, but God's kindness is faithful in the bad times as well. In our sermon today, I hope, though probably not as eloquently as Thomas Chisholm did, I hope to accomplish the same goal he had in writing his song. I want this morning all of our minds to be fixed on the faithfulness of God. 
whether your life is going well or whether you find yourself in this auditorium this morning shaken by unexpected circumstances that are gonna change the course of your life, I want you to leave Fellowship Baptist Church this morning fixing your mind on our faithful God. I want you to come to love his kindness and his faithfulness once again. And really in our passage this morning, Genesis 8 and 9, God's faithfulness shines so bright because if you've been with us through our study through Genesis 1 through 11, we have seen that much of what God has done has been in response to the very unfaithful character of mankind. In Genesis 6, we see the great sin that was prevalent on earth and God had to bring a worldwide flood as a form of judgment against the unfaithful people he had made. But in this passage this morning, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, through Genesis 9, verse 17, I want to see, I want you to see just how faithful God is. And our passage will answer two questions for us about God's faithfulness. We'll answer this morning, at least from this story, how, how does God show his faithfulness? In what ways is a faithful God displayed so gloriously in Genesis 8? And then the second question our passage will answer is how should you respond to that faithfulness? If God is as faithful as we say he is and as we sing, then there is a response demanded from each and every one of us. So let's read this morning. I will only read a portion of our passage starting Genesis 8 verse 20. We'll read through Genesis 9, verse 1. This is immediately after Noah steps out the ark. The word of our God says this in Genesis 8, 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. How does God show his faithfulness in our passage this morning? First of all, I want you to see God shows his faithfulness by sparing sinners from the wrath they deserved. Really our passage is kind of two parallel and equal panels that kind of reflect back and forth. What is said in chapter 8 is almost repeated in chapter 9. And what we see in both sections of chapter 8 and 9 is God's faithfulness to spare sinners the wrath they deserve. Now all of us recognize that all of this happens after Noah steps out of the ark, being saved from the floodwaters of God's judgment, stepping onto really in some ways a new world, and the reason that all of the events before had just happened is because of mankind's sin. 
Mankind was so wicked, God felt it necessary at this point in humanity's history to wipe everybody out but Noah, who was righteous in his family, and start from scratch. But what God recognizes in this passage is that though he has started over with a family that is hopefully going to love him more and worship him better, and he is going to spare everybody from this same repeated judgment. He's promising, verse 21, not to add to the curses and consequences of Genesis 3 that we talked about several months ago. Verse 11 of chapter number 9, God is swearing by his own character, never again shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. He says, I'm never going to do this again. But what's amazing about that is that God is not promising to forbid any future flooding because mankind has gotten better. No, this preservation, this grace, this sparing of judgment is just because he is good and he recognizes that mankind is still evil. Look at verse 22 of chapter eight. He, he points us that, that the faithfulness of the seasons would be an illustration, if you will, of God's faithfulness to spare people from what they deserve. He's gonna keep the seasons to be stable even though he had upended all of creation in the previous verses. I think in some sense, Moses is wanting us to recognize that it is the faithfulness of God that allows us to enjoy anything in this life. If it wasn't for God's faithfulness, I would imagine in a couple thousand years of human history, this would have happened again. Are we in agreement on that? I would be surprised if it would have happened in this day and age. But yet none of that has happened. God has been faithful to his promise. God has never brought another flood, which by the way, this worldwide flood concept is not just a myth. It's well documented in almost every ancient culture on planet earth. I think it might be a legit thing. And God is saying, if you could just look at the predictability of the seasons, that'll help you see the predictability that I will not bring a flood on you. Now, I know some of us aren't involved in agriculture directly, but we, we have a few in the auditorium this morning. Can you imagine farmers and ranchers and such if, if this was not the case of verse 22? Can you imagine if God allowed four weeks of spring and four weeks of summer and then six weeks of a crushing winter and then three weeks of spring and then eight weeks of a crushing winter and then eight weeks of summer and then two weeks of spring? Nobody could grow anything. And I don't know if you recognize this, but if the farmers stop growing stuff, our economy dies immediately. It crashes to the ground. And these are things we take for granted. Now, I know in western Kansas, you know, the old saying is that if you want to see the seasons change, just wait till the end of the day, right? I mean, you're going to have a cold morning, and then by the end of the day, you know, you're, you're taking off your sweater and your jacket, and you're sweating because it's 95 degrees outside because of the wind that constantly is changing the weather. But we recognize that even in our very diverse climate we have here, the seasons are quite predictable. We're entering into that fall season, and we're going to shortly be into that winter season. 
And all of that is pointing us to the fact that God has sustained life on this earth so that you and I don't have to fear the same judgments that was brought upon these people. Now, here's the question we have to ask, okay? If God spared every future generation from a worldwide judgment, which I made the case to you several weeks ago, was deserved, these people deserved the wrath of God, we have to answer a really tough question. How can God not punish people for their sins and still be a good God? If the people in Genesis 6 deserved the floodwaters of judgment and God poured out the floodwaters of judgment, and we recognize that at least different points, society has deserved the same floodwaters of judgment, but God has not, how can we say God is faithful and God is predictable? After all, if it was your family member that had been brutally robbed and assaulted, and you went in the courtroom in the previous case, the judge had thrown the book at the guy. But when you walk in the courtroom that day, he lets him off without any consequences. Would we say that judge was a faithful and good judge? I'll try this side. Would we say that judge was a faithful and good judge? Of course not. No, it's not faithful to arbitrarily let people off the hook. So how can God look at humanity after all of this has happened, recognizing that their sin condition is not fixed? Verse 21 says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. How can God look at the same corrupt creation and pass over pouring out his judgments? This is why. Because God is faithful by responding to a pleasing sacrifice. God's undeserved grace towards sinners is in response to Noah's pleasing sacrifice. Verse 15 through uh, 19, God is commanding Noah and his family to leave the ark. And what is the very first thing Noah does when he leaves the ark? What's the very first thing he does? He offers, look at verse 20, a burnt offering. He built an altar unto the Lord. I imagine his building skills were a little better after building that huge ark. He built an altar unto the Lord and he took of every clean beast and every clean fowl, that's a lot of them. He brought seven of each of them. He, 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 I don't know if he took all of them necessarily, but he took a lot of them. He brought extras and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. But notice how verse 21 directly connects the sacrifice of Noah to God's promise of grace. That it's in response to that sacrifice Noah offers on behalf of mankind that God makes the promises we just reviewed. It says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground. So in response to this pleasing sacrifice Noah offers, God smells the pleasing aroma of that and really it's picturing Noah as a priest. What the priest would do often actually on the day of atonement to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the nation. Here is Noah and he's offering sacrifices on behalf of, well, the very few people that are in God's creation. And on behalf of all mankind, Noah offers up this generous sacrifice to God and it's in response to that generous sacrifice, God spares them from any future flood. But there's two problems. Are you still with me? 
We got head nods. In case, in case you're sitting near the front and you didn't realize other people are with me, here's the first problem. Noah's sacrifice may have prevented any future floods, but it did not fix all of the consequences of sin in Genesis 3. What do we talk about Genesis 3? There's death, there's sorrow, there's difficulty of labor, there's strife between husband and wife and other human relationships. There's all sorts of difficulty of child bearing. All these different things are consequences of sin that Noah's sacrifice didn't fix. Well, we also know in verse 21, it didn't fix the problem that got humanity in all this mess. Noah's sacrifice may have prevented God from flooding all of the earth, but it didn't take away the problem of sin in mankind's heart that would receive God's judgment at some point in the future. So how does God show his faithfulness? He displays his faithfulness by sending the better sacrifice of Jesus to offer what I would call a more effective grace. Oh, there's grace in Genesis 8. But I want you to see that there's even more grace in Hebrews chapter number 8. Because uh, Jesus is going to offer something that's far better than Noah. Noah was righteous. Jesus was sinless. Noah offered an earthly sacrifice, but Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered a sacrifice in the heavenly sanctuary. Noah offered animals. Jesus offered himself. Noah's sacrifice spared humanity from the flood. Jesus' sacrifice spares humanity from death and hell itself. Noah's sacrifice didn't fix the evil that is within our hearts, but the sacrifice of Jesus offers us a new heart that is clean and righteous. There's a better sacrifice. And Hebrews 8 tells us about it in verses 6 through 12. He says, but now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. We see a covenant in our passage, but Jesus brought something better that was established on what? Better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. You know what he's saying there? If Noah's covenant and Moses' covenant with God was so good, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. He brought something far better. And what is that covenant? What does Jesus' promise to us on behalf of his sacrifice offer? Well, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah and says this. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. Hold on. What does Genesis 8:21 say about the heart of man? That the heart of man is evil. But yet what we see in Hebrews 8.10 is that Jesus, because of his sacrifice, is going to fix the evil heart and he's going to put a law, the law of God, into our minds and write it on our hearts and give us a new heart. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. Everybody who's under the covenant will have a relationship with God from the, great, the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Friend, that's a better covenant. That is a better promise in response to a better sacrifice. 
There's a sense in which what's happening in Genesis 8 is God is preserving mankind long enough so that he can send Jesus at the right time. That God is giving humanity enough days for them to be able to accept Jesus Christ who would come later. And our passage in Genesis 8 reminds us that though God was dealing with sin in some way, there's still consequences for our sin. Oh, thank God for the sacrifice of Noah and no worldwide floods, but there's still death. You know someone who's died lately? There's still difficulty when it comes to having children. There's, the ground is still hard to work. Look at my lawn. You'll see exactly how hard it is to work. There's still strife in marriages and in relationships. Sin is still present in the earth. But friend, we're not in a hopeless state because of that, because that's exactly why Jesus came. And he dealt with all of that on the cross and by his resurrection. And if you and I will place our faith in Christ and in his perfect work, we don't have to fear the consequence of death. We don't have to worry about this problem of an evil heart because Jesus promises to give us a new one. Man, God is faithful. Here's the last way God shows his faithfulness. He, he shows his faithfulness by giving us a sign to remember his faithfulness. You all are probably familiar with this passage, but in chapter nine, verses 11 through 12, famously, God points Noah to the rainbow. Now, we don't know if God created the rainbow here, or maybe it was an existing thing that he established and gave more meaning to it. But look at verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more or any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God says, I'm gonna, sh- I'm gonna give you something to help you remember this promise in verse 12. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Can I ask you a question? Do you really think God was worried about forgetting his promise? Do you really think God is like some of you men that you have to be told five times before you remember what your wife told you? Of course not. You know why this happens in this passage? It's not because God is worried that he won't remember. No, God is worried that we won't remember. That you and I will live our days and we'll forget that we actually deserve worse. See, when the rains come and the springtime and you look up and you see that rainbow, whether you see all of it or you see part of it, friend, when you look at that sign, that is God reminding all of earth that we deserve worse. We deserve worse. And that's God reminding us that he is faithful to his promises. That though he brought a worldwide flood on humanity many, many years ago, he has never again broken that promise. He has never crossed that 
promise. God, when he says something, it is settled and it is done and he will not go back on his word. We forget God is good. We take advantage of God's grace and we start living however we want. And what I love about the sign is that it's very intentional in the text. It doesn't say rainbow, does it? What does it call it? A bow. What's a bow? That's a weapon of war, my friend. And in a way, the rainbow symbolizes that God took his weapon of war and he hung it up, never to be used again. In fact, rather than pointing it down at earth, he pointed it back at himself. One day showing that he would take the ultimate price to spare humanity. And this sign of the rainbow points forward to other ways God has given us to remember his faithfulness and his grace. If you've been with us in our Sunday school hour, we've covered our storyline series, which we talked about the theme of covenant, how this sign of the rainbow is a signification of the covenant God made with Noah not to flood the earth. But all of these signs of these covenants point forward to the signs God has given us, the tokens of his covenant he's given to those of us who are recipients of the new covenant. What am I saying? I'm saying that if you've been married, we call marriage a covenant. And at every wedding, what do they do? They exchange... The rings. What is the ring for? Well, you know, every minister has some fancy-dancy thing they say with it, you know, that every other minister says. But what is a ring about? It's a sign. It's a reminder. Do you think Shelby gave me this ring so she could remember that she's married to me? She don't need no reminder. The daily terror I put her through is her everyday reminder of it. No, no. It's a reminder for me to remember her love and her promise. Our rings, my ring's really special. Shelby worked an off-season job. She worked a second job because she really wanted to buy this particular ring for me. And so whenever I look at it, I don't just remember, oh yeah, I'm married. I look at it and think, my wife put in so much work and worked for a company that literally tried to scam her out of her paycheck to buy her future husband a ring. You know, God has given us, in a sense, a wedding ring himself. As believers, as receivers of the new covenant, what are the signs God has given us of that covenant to help us remember the promise he's made to us? Well, as New Testament Christians, he's given us two different symbols of that promise. He's given us baptism... And what, church? The Lord's Supper, communion, Lord's table, whatever title you want to use, they're all the same, right? He's given us both those things, and both those signs symbolize the new covenant, the gospel God has given us, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Why do we do that? Because just as Christ was dead, was buried, and was raised, you too have been dead and buried and raised to walk in newness of life. We partook a, a communion last Sunday night as a church family, and we have the wafer, the bread that represents what? The body of Christ that was given for us. And then we took the juice, which represents the 
blood of Christ. And these both represent our communion with him and our communion with each other as a church family. Listen, Christians, that's why those things are important. That's why communion should be observed regularly among God's people. Not because God forgets, you forget. You forget your covenant with your church family. I forget God's grace. I forget the body that was broken for me. And that's why I unashamedly, as your pastor say, if you're a member of Fellowship Baptist Church, don't forsake the signs of God's faithfulness. Eat that bread and drink that cup when we gather and take it together. Oh, baptism is important as well, and it's a church-wide celebration. When we get to do that, we did that a few months ago, but remember the signs of God's faithfulness. Cherish the signs of God's faithfulness. But this passage is not simply about God's faithfulness to you. No, if we can sing this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Listen, shouldn't we also ask ourselves, how great is my faithfulness? See, the, the theme of Genesis 8 and 9 is this, that God's faithful grace should motivate your faithful obedience. Listen, my friend, I'm not reminding you about the sacrifice of Jesus and the covenant signs and the grace God has had in sparing the world just so you can walk out of here rejoicing. That's good. Do that. And neither was God because with his faithful grace was a command and an expectation for faithful obedience. If God has been faithful to you, you and I have an obligation to be faithful back to him. I love how Hebrews says in chapter 10, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. How do we show our faithfulness back to God? Our passage gives us two different ways. And here's the first one. It's by multiplying and filling the earth with God's glory. God deserves to be known. There are, I don't know how many people in this room that know of God's faithfulness and his grace, but friend, there are millions and billions more who don't know a thing about it. And what we see in our passage is that God is going to command Noah, human creation, and even the animals, chapter eight, verse 17, the same command. Look at chapter eight, verse 17. Halfway through, he says to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And then chapter nine, verse one, it was how we finished our reading. God blessed Noah and his sons and he said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. What does this show us? Oh man, we gotta get this. God does not save us for our own sake. God didn't just save you for you. God did not preserve this little remnant just for them. No. When God preserves a small remnant, what is he up to? 
He was using the people he saved to once again fill the earth with more people and more creatures that would bring him glory. This was his purpose at creation, by the way. He wanted Adam to do the same with his family, and we all know how that worked out. So God, once again, he's wanting to fill the entire earth with all of his glory. What does this command mean in a practical sense for us? Fill, re, multiply and replenish the earth and fill it with God's glory? Well, in a practical sense, I mean, God's telling Noah and his kids, have, have more babies. Are we, are we okay with that? Have a bunch of kids. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you God you know, stipulates how many kids people should have. We all know that we're under the curse and there's some limitations there and I think God allows us to use discernment on what works for one family may not work for another. So that's not where this message is going. But I think it's important for those who are parents and grandparents in here to recognize that your mission of parenting is not just to instill in your kid your preferences and your skill sets. Oh friend, if that's your goal, parenting or grandparenting, your bar's too low. No, 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 the goal of your influence on your children and your grandchildren is so that you can then send them out to fill the earth with God's glory. Hey, I'm all about reaching people and discipling people, but man, one of the best ways for us to do that as a church is to raise up children who love and serve Jesus. That's why we try to minister to kids. We got several downstairs this morning or in the nursery or whatever on Wednesday night for Kids for Truth. And more important than all of that is what you do in your house Monday through Saturday. Parents, how focused are you on a child that lives for God's glory? How much does that dominate your parenting philosophy? How much does that govern what you do in times of disobedience? Are you pointing them to morals or are you pointing them to Christ? What are are you teaching your kid from the Bible throughout the week? What are you instilling in your kids as you walk by the way as Deuteronomy says? Hey, this mission for parenting is a big mission because God wants to use your family, the nuclear family, to fill the earth with his glory. What do we know? We know that God spares a few so that he can multiply and make many. I I mean, Noah and his family were quite a small church, weren't they? Eight people. And and we know Noah's a preacher too, don't we? He was a preacher of righteousness. Peter says that. This passage is not just about having babies. There is a direct connection between God's command in Genesis 9 to fill the earth with his glory, to multiply and replenish the earth. There's a direct connection between that command and the command that Jesus says at the end of the first gospel, Matthew, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus commands his family, his new family, the disciples, to do what? Go ye into all the earth. Sounds like Genesis 9, 1 and preach the gospel unto every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. You know what Jesus is after there? He's after reclaiming the territory that neither Adam nor Noah could figure out. 
Jesus is taking his family and his preserved remnant, and he's saying to all the churches that have existed throughout the centuries, your job is to fill the earth with God's glory. Hey, this morning, I just want to point you to the fact that sometimes our vision is too small. God isn't just about filling Fellowship Baptist Church with his glory. Now, I would love that. There's some empty pews here. We've got some work to do, church family. We're on the same page there? we got some work to do. We, we've got a city here that there may be some great churches, and there may be several of them, but it ain't filled with God's glory yet, so I think we still got work to do, and you have work to do. We don't count on the church down the street to do it. We do it like no one else is doing it, and if other people are doing it, we just rejoice and praise God with them. We need to go out and multiply. I wonder how long it's been, Christian, since you've multiplied. When was the last time a, pew fill, a body filled the pew for God's glory because of your effort? When was the last time a visitor walked through the doors because of your effort? When was the last time a missionary was sent because of this church's effort? Hey, listen, Christians, we've got work to do. There is a world that is cursing God or doesn't even know him, and God has called the local church to fill that world with God's glory. That's why Fellowship Baptist Church, we're all in. We better be on filling Garden City with God's glory. Well, there's some other towns, but let's just start with the one that we're smack dab in the middle of. There's a world that needs to be filled with God's glory. That's why we, we support and we, we su- encourage and we minister to and we visit with missionaries that come through our church. Why? Because God's vision is huge. Christian, is your vision as big as God's? Is it? Don't nod your head. Show me with your feet. Don't just nod your head, grab an invite card on your way out and show with your actions that your vision is as big as God's. I I, I was convicted this week because my vision's too small. My goals are too small. God has a much bigger goal and it's the whole earth. And I know we we can't eat an elephant in one bite We ought to recognize how big the elephant is and start chewing. And some of us haven't chewed for a while. We haven't grabbed an invite card in the last two years that they've been on the back table. So we got some work to do. Somebody say amen to that. Here's the second thing God says. How do we respond to God's faithfulness? Well, we ought to fill the earth with his glory because everyone else deserves to know how faithful God is. But here's the second one. We respond to God's faithfulness by exercising good authority. I'm not going to cover this in detail, but chapter 9, verse 2, talks about how mankind was given authority over animals. The fear of you, verse 2, and the dread of you is on every beast of the earth. Verse 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Actually, this is an expansion in God's plan. I don't think, I think mankind just ate vegetables up to this point, but God allows meat. By the way, if you've ever wondered, how come Christians eat pork? Well, in part, it's because Genesis 9.3 says the first word is what? Every. And the hunter said amen, right? Every moving thing. So God gives dominion, but God also says 
there's a wrong way to use your authority. Because he says you can't, look at verse four, don't eat the blood. And he says, if you eat the blood, verse five, your blood will I require. What's that getting at? The idea here is that we're supposed to exercise authority over God's creation, but in in ancient times, they thought the blood of an animal was a life-giving source. And so paganism often adopted the idea if you drink the blood of an animal, it would extend and increase your life. But God says that the creation that we have authority over is not for our own benefit in that sense. He's given us that creation to steward and manage. And then he starts applying this idea of bloodshed to our responsibility to other humans. Well, we know that this was a real problem in Genesis 6. The earth was filled with violence. And so God here really institutes what we could call human government. In verse number six, whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God has given value to everybody. Every human is made in the image of God. God's given mankind great power. The power to rule, the power to kill. But God says that power to kill is not to be used lightly. That power is only to be used when someone else innocently takes the life of someone else. There's a lot of times Christians try to make the Bible about politics where it's not about politics. But actually Genesis 9 verse 6, it's a political statement. Because what God is saying is that the job of government is to make sure that innocent bloodshed doesn't happen. That it's not government's prerogative to say, ah, we can let murderers off the hook. It's not the government's job to legislate and kill innocent unborn children. No, that's not a political problem. That's a God problem. And we start messing with that, it's a real, real issue. How do we respond to God's faithfulness this morning? Multiply and fill the earth. Parents, you have a really important job. Grandparents, you have a really important job. I know so many grandparents in here are so spiritually invested in their grandchildren. Praise God for that. But church, listen. Can you just look up here? Real quick, this is serious business. I can't help but think, you know, God preserved a small remnant. It's so easy when we're in a smaller church to be like, ah, we can't, we can't do that much. Well, I mean, there's eight people, and God says fill the whole earth. I, I mean, I think if we got 40, 50, 60 people, I, I think we're, we got a head start on Noah, don't we? It wasn't too big of a job for him. Hey, and God knew it would take a while. And so church, there are no excuses. Size is not an excuse because God has commanded us to fill the earth with his glory. And why do we do that? Well, my soul, God's been so good to us, hasn't he? Spared us from the wrath we deserved. He sent his son to give us a better covenant with better promises. And man, I hope this morning... You walk out singing the praises of the name of God. 
who has not given you what you deserve, but he's taken away what you deserved and given you Jesus, which is more than you deserve. But don't just sing his praises, preach his gospel. Because God's faithful grace should motivate you and I to faithful obedience. Let us multiply for his glory and exercise godly authority. Let's conclude this morning in a word of prayer. Father, we